Welcome to Nutting Memorial Library's presentation of Joseph Conrad's Lord Jim, a story of tragedy, adventure, and redemption that begins with a life-changing decision made by a young sailor in a moment of crisis. This podcast presents the text of Lord Jim as read from the original publication, available through Project Gutenberg. You can follow along in the text by clicking the link in our show notes. This is our seventh installment of Lord Jim, which includes chapters 14 through 16 for those following along in the text. Weekly episodes are released each Tuesday, so make sure you subscribe. With each episode, we recommend an article available via Nutting Library's electronic resources that provides insight on aspects of the novel, and we are also sharing details about the historical context at the time of its publication via our social media accounts. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoy this seventh installment of Lord Jim. Chapter 14 I slept little, hurried over my breakfast, and after a slight hesitation gave up my early morning visit to my ship. It was really very wrong of me, because though my chief mate was an excellent man all round, he was the victim of such black imaginings that if he did not get a letter from his wife at the expected time, he would go quite distracted with rage and jealousy, lose all grip on the work, quarrel with all hands, and either weep in his cabin or develop such a ferocity of temper as all but drove the crew to the verge of mutiny. The thing had always seemed inexplicable to me. They had been married 13 years. I had a glimpse of her once, and honestly, I couldn't conceive a man abandoned enough to plunge into sin for the sake of such an unattractive person. I don't know whether I have not done wrong by refraining from putting that view before poor Selvin. The man made a little hell on earth for himself, and I also suffered indirectly, but some sort of, no doubt, false delicacy prevented me. The marital relations of seamen would make an interesting subject, and I could tell you instances. However, this is not the place, nor the time, and we are concerned with Jim, who was unmarried. If his imaginative conscience or his pride, if all the extravagant ghosts and austere shades that were the disastrous familiars of his youth would not let him run away from the block, I, who of course can't be suspected of such familiars, was irresistibly impelled to go and see his head roll off. I wended my way towards the court. I didn't hope to be very much impressed or edified or interested or even frightened, though as long as there is any life before me, a jolly good fright now and then is a salutary discipline. But neither did I expect to be so awfully depressed. The bitterness of his punishment was in its chill and mean atmosphere. The real significance of crime is in its being a breach of faith with the community of mankind, and from that point of view, he was no mean traitor, but his execution was a hole-and-corner affair. There was no high scaffolding, no scarlet cloth. Did they have scarlet cloth on Tower Hill? They should have had. No awe-stricken multitude to be horrified at his guilt and be moved to tears at his fate. No air of somber retribution. There was, as I walked along, the clear sunshine, a brilliance too passionate to be consoling, the streets full of jumbled bits of color like a damaged kaleidoscope, yellow, green, blue, dazzling white, the brown nudity of an undraped shoulder, a bullock cart with a red canopy, a company of native infantry in a drab body with dark heads marching in dusty laced boots, a native policeman in a somber uniform of scanty cut and belted in patent leather, who looked up at me with orientally pitiful eyes, as though his migrating spirit were suffering exceedingly from that unforeseen, what do you call him? Avatar, incarnation. 
Under the shade of a lonely tree in the courtyard, the villagers connected with the assault case sat in a picturesque group, looking like a chromolithograph of a camp in a book of eastern travel. One missed the obligatory thread of smoke in the foreground and the pack animals grazing. A blank yellow wall rose behind, overtopping the tree, reflecting the glare. The courtroom was somber, seemed more vast. High up in the dim space, the punkas were swaying short to and fro, to and fro. Here and there a draped figure, dwarfed by the bare walls, remained without stirring amongst the rows of empty benches, as if absorbed in pious meditation. The plaintiff, who had been beaten, an obese, chocolate-colored man with a shaved head, one fat breast bare and a bright yellow cast mark above the bridge of his nose, sat in pompous immobility. Only his eyes glittered, rolling in the gloom, and the nostrils dilated and collapsed violently as he breathed. Briarly dropped into his seat, looking done up, as though he had spent the night in sprinting on a cinder track. The pious sailing ship skipper appeared excited and made uneasy movements, as if restraining with difficulty an impulse to stand up and exhort us earnestly to prayer and repentance. The head of the magistrate, delicately pale under the neatly arranged hair, resembled the head of a hopeless invalid after he had been washed and brushed and propped up in bed. He moved aside the vase of flowers, a bunch of purple with a few pink blossoms on long stalks, and seizing in both hands a long sheet of bluish paper, ran his eye over it, propped his forearms on the edge of the desk, and began to read aloud, in an even, distinct, and careless voice. By Jove, for all my foolishness about scaffolds and heads rolling off, I assure you it was infinitely worse than a beheading. A heavy sense of finality brooded over all this, unrelieved by the hope of rest and safety following the fall of the axe. These proceedings had all the cold vengefulness of a death sentence and the cruelty of a sentence of exile. This is how I looked at it that morning, and even now I seem to see an undeniable vestige of truth in that exaggerated view of a common occurrence. You may imagine how strongly I felt this at the time. Perhaps it is for that reason that I could not bring myself to admit the finality. The thing was always with me, I was always eager to take opinion on it, as though it had not been practically settled. Individual opinion, international opinion, by Jove, that Frenchman's for instance, his own country's pronouncement was uttered in the passionless and definite phraseology a machine would use, if machines could speak. The head of the magistrate was half hidden by the paper. His brow was like alabaster. There were several questions before the court. The first, as to whether the ship was in every respect fit and seaworthy for the voyage, the court found she was not. The next point, I remember, was whether, up to the time of the accident, the ship had been navigated with proper and seamanlike care. They said yes to that, goodness knows why, and then they declared that there was no evidence to show the exact cause of the accident. A floating derelict, probably. I myself remember that a Norwegian bark bound out with a cargo of pitch pine had been given up as missing about that time, and it was just the sort of craft that would capsize in a squall and float bottom up for months, a kind of maritime ghoul on the prowl to kill ships in the dark. Such wandering corpses are common enough in the North Atlantic, which is haunted by all the terrors of the sea, fogs, icebergs, dead ships bent upon mischief, and long sinister gales that fasten upon one like a vampire till all the strength and the spirit and even hope are gone, and one feels like the empty shell of a man. But there, in those seas, the incident was rare enough to resemble a special arrangement of a malevolent providence, 
which, unless it had for its object the killing of a donkeyman and the bringing of worse than death upon Jim, appeared an utterless aimless piece of devilry. This view occurring to me took off my attention. For a time I was aware of the magistrate's voice as a sound merely, but in a moment it shaped itself into distinct words. In utter disregard of their plain duty, it said. The next sentence escaped me somehow, and then, abandoning in the moment of danger the lives and property confided to their charge, went on the voice evenly, and stopped. A pair of eyes under the white forehead shot darkly a glance above the edge of the paper. I looked for Jim hurriedly, as though I had expected him to disappear. He was very still, but he was there. He sat pink and fair and extremely attentive. Therefore, began the voice emphatically. He stared with parted lips, hanging upon the words of the man behind the desk. These came out into the stillness, wafted on the wind made by the punkas, and I, watching for their effect upon him, caught only the fragments of official language. The court, Gustav so-and-so, master, native of Germany, James so-and-so, mate, certificates cancelled. A silence fell. The magistrate had dropped the paper and, leaning sideways on the arm of his chair, began to talk with Briarly easily. People started to move out, others were pushing in, and I also made for the door. Outside I stood still, and when Jim passed me on his way to the gate, I caught at his arm and detained him. The look he gave discomposed me. As though I had been responsible for his state, he looked at me as if I had been the embodied evil of life. "'It's all over,' I stammered. "'Yes,' he said thickly. "'And now let no man—' He jerked his arm out of my grasp. I watched his back as he went away. It was a long street, and he remained in sight for some time. He walked rather slow, and straddling his legs a little, as if he had found it difficult to keep a straight line. Just before I lost him, I fancied he staggered a bit. "'Man overboard,' said a deep voice behind me. Turning round, I saw a fellow I knew slightly— a West Australian. Chester was his name. He, too, had been looking after Jim. He was a man with an immense girth of chest, a rugged, clean-shaven face of mahogany color, and two blunt tufts of iron-gray, thick, wiry hairs on his upper lip. He had been pearler, wrecker, trader, whaler, too, I believe, in his own words, anything and everything a man may be at sea, but a pirate. The Pacific, north and south, was his proper hunting ground, but he had wandered so far afield looking for a cheap steamer to buy. Lately he had discovered, so he said, a guano island somewhere, but its approaches were dangerous and the anchorage, such as it was, could not be considered safe, to say the least of it. As good as a gold mine, he would exclaim, right bang in the middle of the Walpole Reefs, and if it's true enough that you can get no holding ground anywhere in less than forty fathom, then what of it? There are the hurricanes, too, but it's a first-rate thing as good as a gold mine, better. Yet there's not a fool of them that will see it. I can't get a skipper or a ship owner to go near the place. So I made up my mind to cart the blessed stuff myself. This was what he required a steamer for, and I knew he was just then negotiating enthusiastically with a Parsi firm for an old brig-rigged sea anachronism of ninety horsepower. We had met and spoken together several times. He looked knowingly after Jim. Takes it to heart? he asked scornfully. "'Very much,' I said. "'Then he's no good,' he opined. "'What's all the to-do about? "'Bit of ass's skin. "'That never yet made a man. 
You must see things exactly as they are. If you don't, you may just as well give in at once. You will never do anything in this world. Look at me. I made it a practice never to take anything to heart. Yes, I said, you see things as they are. I wish I could see my partner coming along. That's what I wish to see, he said. Know my partner? Old Robinson? Yes, the Robinson. Don't you know? The notorious Robinson. The man who smuggled more opium and bagged more seals in his time than any loose Johnny now alive. They say he used to board the sealing schooners up Alaska way when the fog was so thick that the Lord God, he alone, could tell one man from another. Holy Terror Robinson, that's the man. He is with me in that guano thing. The best chance he ever came across in his life. He put his lips to my ear. Cannibal? Well, they used to give him the name years and years ago. You remember the story? A shipwreck on the west side of Stewart Island. That's right, seven of them got ashore, and it seems they did not get on very well together. Some men are too cantankerous for anything. Don't know how to make the best of a bad job. Don't see things as they are. As they are, my boy. And then what's the consequence? Obvious. Trouble, trouble. As likely as not a knock on the head, and serve them right, too. That sort is the most useful when it's dead. The story goes that a boat of Her Majesty's ship Wolverine found him kneeling on the kelp, naked as the day he was born, and chanting some psalm tune or other. Light snow was falling at the time. He waited till the boat was an oar's length from the shore, and then up and away. They chased him for an hour up and down the boulders, till a marine flung a stone that took him behind the ear providentially and knocked him senseless. Alone? Of course. But that's like the, that tale of sealing schooners. The Lord God knows the right and the wrong of that story. The cutter did not investigate much. They wrapped him in a boat cloak and took him off as quick as they could, with the dark night coming on, the weather threatening, and the ship firing recall guns every five minutes. Three weeks afterward, he was as well as ever. He didn't allow any fuss that was made on shore to upset him. He just shut his lips tight and let people screech. It was bad enough to have lost his ship and all he was worth besides, without paying attention to the hard names they called him. That's the man for me. He lifted his arm for a signal to someone down the street. He's got a little money, so I had to let him into my thing. Had to. It would have been sinful to throw away such a find, and I was cleaned out myself. It cut me to the quick, but I could see the matter just as it was. And if I must share, thinks I, with any man, then give me Robinson. I left him at breakfast in the hotel to come to court, because I've an idea. Ah, good morning, Captain Robinson, friend of mine, Captain Robinson. An emaciated patriarch in a suit of white drill, a sola topi with a green-lined rim on the, a head trembling with age, joined us after crossing the street in a trotting shuffle, and stood propped with both hands on the handle of an umbrella. A white beard with amber streaks hung lumpily down to his waist. He blinked his creased eyelids at me in a bewildered way. How do you do? How do you do? He piped amiably and tottered. A little deaf, said Chester, aside. Did you drag him over six thousand miles to get a cheap steamer? I asked. I would have taken him twice round the world as soon as look at him, said Chester with immense energy. The steamer will be the making of us, my lad. Is it my fault that every skipper and shipowner in the whole of blessed Australasia turns out a blamed fool? Once I talked for three hours to a man in Auckland. Send a ship, I said, send a ship. I'll give you half of the first cargo for yourself, free gratis for nothing, just to make a good start. Says he, I wouldn't do it if there is no other place on earth to send a ship to. Perfect ass, of course. Rocks, currents, no anchorage, sheer cliff to lay to. No insurance company would take the risk. Didn't see how he could get loaded under three years. Ass. I nearly went on my knees to him. But look at the thing as it is, says I. Damn rocks and hurricanes. Look at it as it is. There's guano there Queensland sugar planters would fight for. Fight for on the key, I tell you. What can you do with a fool? 
That's one of your little jokes, Chester, he says. Joke! I could have wept. Ask Captain Robinson here. And there was another ship-owning fellow, a fat chap in a white waistcoat in Wellington, who seemed to think I was up to some swindle or other. I don't know what sort of fool you're looking for, he says, but I am busy just now. Good morning. I longed to take him in my two hands and smash him through the window of his town office, but I didn't. I was as mild as a carrot. Think of it, says I. Do think it over. I'll call tomorrow. He grunted something about being out all day. On the stairs, I felt ready to beat my head against the wall from vexation. Captain Robinson here can tell you. It was awful to think of all that lovely stuff lying waste under the sun. Stuff that would send the sugarcane shooting sky high. The making of Queensland. The making of Queensland. And in Brisbane, where I went to have a last try, they gave me the name of a lunatic. Idiots. The only sensible man I came across was the cabman who drove me about. Broken down swell he was, I fancy. Hey, Captain Robinson, you remember I told you about my cabbie in Brisbane, don't you? The chap had a wonderful eye for things. He saw it all in a jiffy. It was a real pleasure to talk to him. One evening, after a devil of a day amongst ship owners, I felt so bad that, says I, I must get drunk. Come along, I must get drunk, or I'll go mad. I am your man, he says. Go ahead. I don't know what I would have done without him. Hey, Captain Robinson. He poked the ribs of his partner. He <laughs> laughed the ancient, looking aimlessly down the street, then peered at me doubtfully with sad, dim pupils. <laughs> he leaned heavily on the umbrella and dropped his gaze on the ground. I needn't tell you, I had tried to get away several times, but Chester had foiled every attempt by simply catching hold of my coat. One minute, I've a notion. What's your infernal notion? I exploded at last. If you think I am going in with you... No, no, my boy, too late if you want it ever so much. We've got a steamer. You've got the ghost of a steamer, I said. Good enough for a start. There's no superior nonsense about us. Is there, Captain Robinson? No, no, no croaked the old man without lifting his eyes, and the senile tremble of his head became almost fierce with determination. "'I understand you know that young chap,' said Chester, with a nod at the street from which Jim had disappeared long ago. "'He's been having grub with you in the Malabar last night, so I was told.' I said that was true, and after remarking that he, too, liked to live well and in style, only that, for the present, he had to be saving of every penny. "'None too many for the business, isn't that so, Captain Robinson?' He squared his shoulders and stroked his dumpy mustache while the notorious Robinson, coughing at his side, clung more than ever to the handle of the umbrella and seemed ready to subside passively into a heap of old bones. "'You see, the old chap has all the money,' whispered Chester confidentially. "'I've been cleaned out trying to engineer the dratted thing, but wait a bit, wait a bit, the good time is coming.' He seemed suddenly astonished at the signs of impatience I gave. "'Oh, crikey!' he cried. "'I am telling you the biggest thing that ever was, and you—' "'I have an appointment,' I pleaded mildly. "'What of that?' he asked with genuine surprise. "'Let it wait!' "'That's exactly what I am doing now,' I remarked. "'Hadn't you better tell me what it is you want?' "'Buy twenty hotels like that,' he growled to himself, "'and every joker boarding in them, too, twenty times over.' He lifted his head smartly. "'I want that young chap.' I don't understand, I said. He's no good, is he? said Chester crisply. I know nothing about it, I protested. Why, you told me yourself he was taking it to heart, argued Chester. Well, in my opinion, a chap who... Anyhow, he can't be much good, but then you see, I am on the lookout for somebody, and I've just got a thing that will suit him. I'll give him a job on my island. He nodded significantly. 
I'm going to dump 40 coolies there if I have to steal them. Somebody must work this stuff. Oh, I mean to act square. Wooden shed, corrugated iron roof. I know a man in Hobart who will take my bill at six months for the materials. I do. Honor bright. Then there's the water supply. I'll have to fly around and get somebody to trust me for half a dozen second-hand iron tanks. Catch rainwater, hey? Let him take charge. Make him supreme boss over the coolies. Good idea, isn't it? What do you say? There are whole years when not a drop of rain falls on Walpole, I said, too amazed to laugh. He bit his lip and seemed bothered. Oh, well, I'll fix up something for them. Or land a supply. Hang it all. That's not the question. I said nothing. I had a rapid vision of Jim perched on a shadowless rock, up to his knees in guano, with the screams of seabirds in his ears, the incandescent ball of the sun above his head, the empty sky and the empty ocean all aquiver, simmering together in the heat as far as the eye could reach. I wouldn't advise my worst enemy, I began. What's the matter with you? cried Chester. I mean to give him a good screw. That is, as soon as the thing is set going, of course. It's as easy as falling off a log. Simply nothing to do. Two six-shooters in his belt. Surely he wouldn't be afraid of anything forty coolies could do. With two six-shooters and he the only armed man, too. It's much better than it looks. I want you to help me to talk him over. No! I shouted. Old Robinson lifted his bleared eyes dismally for a moment. Chester looked at me with infinite contempt. So you wouldn't advise him? He uttered slowly. Certainly not, I answered, as indignant as though he had requested me to help murder somebody. Moreover, I am sure he wouldn't. He is badly cut up, but he isn't mad as far as I know. He is no earthly good for anything, Chester mused aloud. He would just have done for me. If you only could see a thing as it is, you would only see it's the very thing for him. And besides, why, it's the most splendid. Sure chance. He got angry suddenly. I must have a man. There! He stamped his foot and smiled unpleasantly. Anyhow, I could guarantee the island wouldn't sink under him, and I believe he is a bit particular on that point. Good morning, I said curtly. He looked at me as though I had been an incomprehensible fool. Must be moving, Captain Robinson, he yelled suddenly into the old man's ear. These Parsi Johnnies are waiting for us to clinch the bargain. He took his partner under the arm with a firm grip, swung him round, and, unexpectedly, leered at me over his shoulder. I was trying to do him a kindness, he asserted, with an air and tone that made my blood boil. Thank you for nothing, in his name, I rejoined. Oh, you are devilish smart, he sneered. But you are like the rest of them, too much in the clouds. See what you will do with him. I don't know that I want to do anything with him. Don't you? he spluttered. His gray mustache bristled with anger, and by his side the notorious Robinson, propped on the umbrella, stood with his back to me, as patient and still as a worn-out cab horse. I haven't found a guano island, I said. It's my belief you wouldn't know one if you were led right up to it by the hand, he reposted quickly. And in this world, you've got to see a thing first before you can make use of it. Got to see it through and through at that, neither more nor less. And get others to see it too, I insinuated, with a glance at the bowed back by his side. Chester snorted at me. His eyes are right enough, don't you worry, he ain't a puppy. Oh dear no, I said. Come along, Captain Robinson, he shouted, with a sort of bullying deference under the rim of the old man's hat. 
The holy terror gave a submissive little jump. The ghost of a steamer was waiting for them. Fortune on that fair isle. They made a curious pair of argonauts. Chester strode on leisurely, well set up, portly, and of conquering mien. The other, long, wasted, drooping, and hooked to his arm, shuffled his withered shanks with desperate haste. Joining us now to talk about this section of the text and provide an article recommendation is Lauren Gargani, Library Director at Maine Maritime Academy. Hi, Lauren. Welcome back. Hi, Anne. How are you today? Doing great. Tell me what you've got for us today. Well, we are going to be talking about one of nine essays in this special issue of The Conradian. And this is from the year 2000, so of course that's the 100th anniversary of its publication. Um, but these are all about Lord Jim. It's a special issue and entirely focused on the novel. Uh, I've selected one, but I really wanted to mention the fact that, you know, this is something that we have access to through the library databases. So if you wanted to just go look at this issue that's entirely devoted to this novel, that's that's an option. Great. So the Conradian is, uh, it sounds like a scholarly journal that talks about Conrad's work. Yes, good question. In their own words, they call themselves a scholarly journal devoted to all aspects of the life and works of Joseph Conrad. And, you know, this is uh, the source of some of the articles that we have been talking about over the last few weeks. So um, it is not the only journal about Conrad, but it is one of them. That's great. Yeah, so the year 2000 with that 100-year um, anniversary must have been pretty big for them. Um, makes me realize that we're already at 120 years out. So it's surprising sometimes reading a book that is in many ways very modern and dealing with issues that we still deal with today. Um, is that old? Right. And, you know, the extra layer of the year 2000 being 20 years ago for me is, you know, super disturbing because I, you know, I'm just at that age. We won't, we won't go there. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's interesting when, it, this was published that was 100 years out, so definitely taking a historical look. Um, but I would imagine that in terms of the scholarship, even looking now at that issue, we can take almost a historical look at what our scholarly thinking was at that point and see how it's progressed. Absolutely. That would be a nice project to kind of trace, you know, what, what the scholarship on Lord Jim has looked like over the decades. So... Yeah. So what is this one article that you've picked out to be especially interesting? Okay. So this one is called The Missing Crew of the Patna, and it's by Jean Moore. And it delves into the idea that, you know, we hear a lot about the officers on board the Patna, and we see a lot of mentions of the passengers. And we don't hear that much explicitly said about the crew, which is something that you might have noticed as you've been reading it. Yeah, um, absolutely. We hear a little bit about them, um, you know, leaving the ship and we hear about them in the lifeboat. Um, but we see them quite briefly in the scheme of things. Yes. And this article really addresses that head on. And and really looks closely at the text for mentions um, and, you know, allusions to the crew. 
and give some evidence to talk about, you know, what can we determine about them from what Conrad has actually told us? And it's, you know, just one more really interesting take on this novel, but it also talks about comparisons that can be made to the fictional tale of the Patna and the story of the Jetta, which has been recognized as a primary source for that story. Okay. So the Jetta, was that a historical event that occurred that the Patna was then based on? That's the thinking. Um, it was a pilgrim ship. It was abandoned in 1880. And, you know, there are some discrepancies in terms of, you know, they're not identical. Um, the author points out that the Jetta was about two-thirds the size of the Patna, um, but that she had even more passengers. Um, and we do know a bit about the crew of the Jetta. And so, you know, we get some detail on that and some actual reports from the inquiry um, in real life, the inquiry related to the Jetta. And so, you know, it's, it's a really nice um, attempt to give us some more context and to learn a little bit more about what the crew would have been like and what they would have been facing in a situation like this. I know that will be especially interesting to our particular community because they're ones who um, might relate um, to some aspects of them, but also will recognize maybe how things have changed or you know what crews would ideally not be like um, given the situation that we're seeing in this book. Right, right. Uh, it's also, it's interesting to me that this text is especially rich for analysis because it is based on some of these real events and real people, but with a lot of changes. So it leaves a lot of room both to analyze the text just as it stands or the text in its historical context, but also then pairing it back to actual events, seeing if we can add information, um, which is always a little difficult because it may well be that Conrad specifically didn't mean to make it identical to the historical event, that his characters are different or his event was different, but it leads so much interesting information uh, to be analyzed and compared. Definitely. And um, do you remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about Augustine Podmore Williams, who was a possible basis for our actual character of Jim? Yeah, I do yeah. remember that. It's a great name, too. Yeah. So um, he reappears in this article and there's talk about um, Conrad possibly weaving together various aspects of different actual um, real life events. And there is a ship that was captained by Williams that may have also been referenced. Um, and he was also, I'm sorry, he was the first mate, rather. So he was first mate on the Jetta, um, but he also served on another ship that may be um, slightly informing Lord Jim and giving us some details in there. Yeah, that's, that's really fascinating. Conrad certainly seems to have been aware of his maritime community and kind of absorbing a lot of different information over the years and coalescing all of that together and um, kind of digesting it over a number of years before he ended up producing this text. Very much so. 
Well, that is fascinating. Thank you so much. Um, and I assume this whole issue of the Conradian and this article in particular are also available through our databases. Is that right? Exactly. You can find them in JSTOR. Great. And I will uh, include a link um, to the specific article as usual, that full citation. Um, and I'll also include some information on getting to just that issue in general. Thanks. And now we return to this installment of Lord Jim by Joseph Conrad. Chapter 15 I did not start in search of Jim at once, only because I had really an appointment which I could not neglect. Then, as ill luck would have it, in my agent's office I was fastened upon by a fellow fresh from Madagascar, with a little scheme for a wonderful piece of business. It had something to do with cattle and cartridges, and a Prince Ravenalo something, but the pivot of the whole affair was the stupidity of some admiral, Admiral Pierre, I think. Everything turned on that and the chap couldn't find words strong enough to express his confidence. He had globular eyes staring out of his head with a fishy glitter, bumps on his forehead, and wore his long hair brushed back without a parting. He had a favorite phrase, which he kept on repeating triumphantly. The minimum of risk with the maximum of profit is my motto, what? He made my head ache, spoiled my tiffin, but got his own out of me all right, and as soon as I had shaken him off, I made straight for the waterside. I caught sight of Jim leaning over the parapet of the quay. Three native boatmen quarreling over five annas were making an awful row at his elbow. He didn't hear me come up, but spun round as if the slight contact of my finger had released a catch. I was looking, he stammered. I don't remember what he said, not much anyhow, but he made no difficulty in following me to the hotel. He followed me as manageable as a little child, with an obedient air, with no sort of manifestation rather as though he had been waiting for me there to come along and carry him off. I need not have been so surprised as I was at his tractability. On all the round earth, which to some seems so big and that others affect to consider as rather smaller than a mustard seed, he had no place where he could, what shall I say, where he could withdraw, that's it, withdraw, be alone with his loneliness. He walked by my side very calm, glancing here and there, and once turned his head to look after a city-boy fireman in a cutaway coat and yellowish trousers, whose black face had silky gleams like a lump of anthracite coal. I doubt, however, whether he saw anything, or even remained all the time aware of my companionship, because if I had not edged him to the left here or pulled him to the right there, I believe he would have gone straight before him in any direction till stopped by a wall or some other obstacle. I steered him into my bedroom and sat down at once to write letters. This was the only place in the world, unless perhaps the Walpole Reef, but that was not so handy, where he could have it out with himself without being bothered by the rest of the universe. The damned thing, as he had expressed it, had not made him invisible, but I behaved exactly as though he were. No sooner in my chair I bent over my writing desk like a medieval scribe, and, but for the movement of the hand holding the pen, remained anxiously quiet. I can't say I was frightened, but I certainly kept as still as if there had been something dangerous in the room, that at the first hint of a movement on my part would be provoked to pounce upon me. There is not much in the room, you know how these bedrooms are, a sort of four-poster bedstead under a mosquito net, two or three chairs, the table I was writing at, a bare floor. 
The glass door opened on an upstairs veranda, and he stood with his face to it, having a hard time with all possible privacy. Dusk fell. I lit a candle with the greatest economy of movement, and as much prudence as though it were in a legal proceeding. There is no doubt he had a very hard time of it. And so had I, even to the point, I must own, of wishing him to the devil, or on Walpole Reef at least. It occurred to me once or twice that, after all, Chester was, perhaps, the man to deal effectively with such a disaster. That strange idealist had found a practical use for it at once, unerringly, as it were. It was enough to make one suspect that, maybe, he really could see the true aspect of things that appeared mysterious or utterly hopeless to less imaginative persons. I wrote and wrote. I liquidated all the arrears of my correspondence, and then went on writing to people who had no reason whatever to expect from me a gossipy letter about nothing at all. At times I stole a sidelong glance. He was rooted to the spot, but convulsive shudders ran down his back. His shoulders would heave suddenly. He was fighting, he was fighting, mostly for his breath, as it seemed. The massive shadows, cast all one way from the straight flame of the candle, seemed possessed of gloomy consciousness. The immobility of the furniture had to my furtive eye an air of attention. I was becoming fanciful in the midst of my industrious scribbling, and though when the scratching of my pen stopped for a moment, there was complete silence and stillness in the room. I suffered from that profound disturbance and confusion of thought which is caused by a violent and menacing uproar of a heavy gale at sea, for instance. Some of you may know what I mean. That mingled anxiety, distress, and irritation with a sort of craven feeling creeping in, not pleasant to acknowledge, but which gives a quite special merit to one's endurance. I don't claim any merit for standing the stress of Jim's emotions. I could take refuge in the letters. I could have written to strangers if necessary. Suddenly, as I was taking up a fresh sheet of notepaper, I heard a low sound, the first sound that, since we had been shut up together, had come to my ears in the dim stillness of the room. I remained with my head down, with my hand arrested. Those who have kept vigil by a sick bed have heard such faint sounds in the stillness of the night watches, sounds wrung from a racked body, from a weary soul. He pushed the glass door with such force that all the panes rang. He stepped out, and I held my breath, straining my ears without knowing what else I expected to hear. He was really taking too much to heart, an empty formality which to Chester's rigorous criticism seemed unworthy the notice of a man who could see things as they were. An empty formality. A piece of parchment. Well, well, as to an inaccessible guano deposit, there was another story altogether. One could intelligibly break one's heart over that. A feeble burst of many voices mingled with a tinkle of silver and glass floated up from the dining room below, through the open door, the outer edge of the light from my candle fell on his back faintly. Beyond, all was black. He stood on the brink of a vast obscurity, like a lonely figure by the shore of a somber and hopeless ocean. There was the Walpole Reef in it, to be sure. A speck in the dark void, a straw for the drowning man. My compassion for him took the shape of the thought that I wouldn't have liked his people to see him at that moment. I found it trying, myself. His back was no longer shaken by his gasps. He stood straight as an arrow, faintly visible and still, and the meaning of this stillness sank to the bottom of my soul like lead into the water, 
and made it so heavy that for a second I wished heartily that the only course left open for me was to pay for his funeral. Even the law had done with him. To bury him would have been such an easy kindness. It would have been so much in accordance with the wisdom of life, which consists in putting out of sight all the reminders of our folly, of our weakness, of our mortality, all that makes against our efficiency. The memory of our failures, the hints of our undying fears, the bodies of our dear friends. Perhaps he did take it too much to heart. And if so, then, Chester's offer. At this point, I took up a fresh sheet and began to write resolutely. There is nothing but myself between him and the dark ocean. I had a sense of responsibility. If I spoke, would that motionless and suffering youth leap into the obscurity, clutch at the straw? I found out how difficult it may be sometimes to make a sound. There is a weird power in a spoken word. And why the devil not? I was asking myself persistently while I drove on with my writing. All at once, on the blank page, under the very point of the pen, the two figures of Chester and his antique partner, very distinct and complete, would dodge into view with stride and gestures, as if reproduced in the field of some optical toy. I would watch them for a while. No, they were too phantasmal and extravagant to enter into anyone's fate. And a word carries far, very far, deals destruction through time as the bullets go flying through space. I said nothing, and he, out there with his back to the light, as if bound and gagged by all the invisible foes of man, made no stir and made no sound. Chapter 16 the time was coming when I should see him loved, trusted, admired, with a legend of strength and prowess forming round his name, as though he had been the stuff of a hero. It's true, I assure you, as true as I'm sitting here talking about him in vain. He, on his side, had that faculty of beholding at a hint the face of his desire and the shape of his dream, without which the earth would know no lover and no adventurer. He captured much honor and an Arcadian happiness. I won't say anything about innocence, in the bush, and it was as good to him as the honor and the Arcadian happiness of the streets to another man. Felicity, Felicity, how shall I say it, is quaffed out of a golden cup in every latitude. The flavor is with you, with you alone, and you can make it as intoxicating as you please. He was the sort that would drink deep, as you may guess from what went before. I found him, if not exactly intoxicated, then at least flushed with the elixir at his lips. He had not obtained it at once. There had been, as you know, a period of probation amongst infernal ship chandlers, during which he had suffered and I had worried about—about about my trust, you may call it. I don't know that I am completely reassured now, after beholding him in all his brilliance. That was my last view of him, in a strong light, dominating, and yet in complete accord with his surroundings with the life of all the forests, and with the life of men. I own that I was impressed, but I must admit to myself that after all this is not the lasting impression. He was protected by his isolation, alone of his superior kind, in close touch with nature, that keeps faith on such easy terms with her lovers. But I cannot fix before my eye the image of his safety. I shall always remember him as seen through the open door of my room, taking, perhaps, too much to heart the mere consequences of his failure. I am pleased, of course, that some good, and even some splendor, came out of my endeavors, but at times it seems to me it would have been 
better for my peace of mind if I had not stood between him and Chester's confoundedly generous offer. I wonder what his exuberant imagination would have made of Walpole Islet, that most hopelessly forsaken crumb of dry land on the face of the waters. It is not likely I would ever have heard, for I must tell you that Chester, after calling at some Australian port to patch up his brig-rigged sea anachronism, steamed out into the Pacific with a crew of twenty-two hands, all told, and the only news having a possible bearing upon the mystery of his fate was the news of a hurricane, which is supposed to have swept in its course over the Walpole Shoals a month or so afterwards. Not a vestige of the Argonauts ever turned up. Not a sound came out of the waste. Fini. The Pacific is the most discreet of live, hot-tempered oceans. The chilly Antarctic can keep a secret, too, but more in the manner of a grave. And there is a sense of blessed finality in such discretion, which is what we all more or less sincerely are ready to admit. For what else is it that makes the idea of death supportable? End. Fini. The potent word that exercises from the house of life the haunting shadow of fate. This is what, notwithstanding the testimony of my eyes and his own earnest assurances, I miss when I look back upon Jim's success. While there's life, there is hope, truly. But there is fear, too. I don't mean to say that I regret my action, nor will I pretend that I can't sleep a night's in consequence. Still, the idea obtrudes itself that he made so much of his disgrace while it is the guilt alone that matters. He was not, if I may say so, clear to me. He was not clear. And there is a suspicion he was not clear to himself, either. There were his fine sensibilities, his fine feelings, his fine longings, a sort of sublimated, idealized selfishness. He was, if you allow me to say so, very fine, very fine and very fortunate. A little coarser nature would not have borne the strain. I would have had to come to terms with itself, with a sigh, with a grunt, or even with a guffaw. A still coarser one would have remained invulnerably ignorant and completely uninteresting. But he was too interesting or too unfortunate to be thrown to the dogs, or even to Chester. I felt this while I sat with my face over the paper, and he fought and gasped, struggling for his breath in that terribly stealthy way in my room. I felt it when he rushed out on the veranda as if to fling himself over, and didn't. I felt it more and more all the time he remained outside, faintly lighted on the background of night, as if standing on the shore of a somber and hopeless sea. An abrupt heavy rumble made me lift my head. The noise seemed to roll away, and suddenly a searching and violent glare fell on the blind face of the night. The sustained and dazzling flicker seemed to last for an unconscionable time. The growl of the thunder increased steadily while I looked at him, distant and black, planted solidly on the shores of a sea of light. At the moment of greatest brilliance, the darkness leaped back with a culminating crash, and he vanished before my dazzled eyes as utterly as though he had been blown to atoms. A blustering sigh passed. Furious hands seemed to tear at the shrubs, shake the tops of the trees below, slam doors, break window panes, all along the front of the building. He stepped in, closing the door behind him, and found me bending over the table. My sudden anxiety as to what he would say was very great and akin to a fright. "'May I have a cigarette?' he asked. I gave a push to the box without raising my head. "'I want—want—tobacco,' he muttered. I became extremely buoyant. "'Just a moment,' I grunted pleasantly. He took a few steps here and there. "'That's over,' I heard him say. 
A single distant clap of thunder came from the sea like a gun of distress. The monsoon breaks up early this year, he remarked conversationally somewhere behind me. This encouraged me to turn round, which I did as soon as I had finished addressing the last envelope. He was smoking greedily in the middle of the room, and though he heard the stir I made, he remained with his back to me for a time. Come, I carried it off pretty well, he said, wheeling suddenly. Something's paid off. Not much. I wonder what's to come. His face did not show any emotion, only it appeared a little darkened and swollen, as though he had been holding his breath. He smiled reluctantly, as it were, and went on while I gazed up at him mutely. Thank you, though. Your room. Jolly convenient for a chap. Badly hipped. The rain pattered and swished in the garden. A water pipe, it must have had a hole in it, performed just outside the window a parody of blubbering woe with funny sobs and gurgling lamentations, interrupted by jerky spasms of silence. A bit of shelter. He mumbled and ceased. A flash of faded lightning darted in through the black framework of the windows and ebbed out without any noise. I was thinking how I had best approach him. I did not want to be flung off again, when he gave a little laugh. No better than a vagabond now. The end of the cigarette smoldered between his fingers. Without a single, single, he pronounced slowly. And yet... He paused. The rain fell with redoubled violence. Some days one's bound to come upon some sort of chance to get it all back again. Must, he whispered distinctly, glaring at my boots. I did not even know what he wished so much to regain, what it was he had so terribly missed. It might have been so much that it was impossible to say. A piece of ass's skin, according to Chester. He looked up at me inquisitively. Perhaps, if life's long enough, I muttered through my teeth with unreasonable animosity, don't reckon too much on it. Jove, I feel as if nothing could ever touch me, he said in a tone of somber conviction. If this business couldn't knock me over, then there's no fear of there being not enough time to climb out, and... He looked upwards. It struck me that it is from such as he that the great army of waifs and strays is recruited, an army that marches down, down into all the gutters of the earth. As soon as he left my room, that bit of shelter he would take his place in the ranks, and begin the journey toward the bottomless pit. I at least had no illusions, but it was I, too, who a moment ago had been so sure of the power of words, and now was afraid to speak, in the same way one dares not move for fear of losing a slippery hold. It is when we try to grapple with another man's intimate need that we perceive how incomprehensible, wavering and misty are the beings that share with us the sight of the stars and the warmth of the sun. It is as if loneliness were a hard and absolute condition of existence, the envelope of flesh and blood on which our eyes are fixed melts before the outstretched hand, and there remains only the capricious, unconsolable, and elusive spirit that no eye can follow, no hand can grasp. It was the fear of losing him that kept me silent, for it was borne upon me suddenly, and with unaccountable force, that should I let him slip away into the darkness, I would never forgive myself. Well, thanks, once more. You've been, uh, uncommonly, really, there's no word to... Uncommonly. I don't know why, I am sure. I am afraid I don't feel as grateful as I would if the whole thing hadn't been so brutally sprung on me, because at bottom, you, yourself... He stuttered. Possibly, I struck in, he frowned. All the time, one is responsible. He watched me like a hawk. 
and that's true too, I said. Well, I've gone with it to the end, and I don't intend to let any man cast it in my teeth without, without resenting it, he clenched his fist. There's yourself, I said with a smile, mirthless enough, God knows, but he looked at me menacingly. That's my business, he said. An air of indomitable resolution came and went upon his face like a vain and passing shadow. Next moment, he looked a dear good boy in trouble, as before. He flung away the cigarette. Goodbye, he said, with a sudden haste of a man who had lingered too long in view of a pressing bit of work waiting for him. And then, for a second or so, he made not the slightest movement. The downpour fell with the heavy, uninterrupted rush of a sweeping flood, with a sound of unchecked, overwhelming fury that called to one's mind the images of collapsing bridges, of uprooted trees, of undermined mountains. No man could breast the colossal and headlong stream that seemed to break and swirl against the dim stillness in which we were precariously sheltered, as if on an island. The perforated pipe gurgled, choked, spat, and splashed an odious ridicule of a swimmer fighting for his life. It is raining, I remonstrated. And I... Rain or shine, he began brusquely, checked himself, and walked to the window. Perfect deluge, he muttered after a while. He leaned his forehead on the glass. It's dark, too. Yes, it is very dark, I said. He pivoted on his heels, crossed the room, and had actually opened the door leading into the corridor before I leaped up from my chair. Wait, I cried. I want you to... I can't dine with you again tonight, he flung at me, with one leg out of the room already. I haven't the slightest intention to ask you, I shouted. At this, he drew back his foot, but remained mistrustfully in the very doorway. I lost no time in entreating him earnestly not to be absurd, to come in and shut the door. Thank you for joining us for this installment of Lord Jim. As a reminder, please check our show notes for the link to the text as well as information on related reading. This episode was read and produced by me, Anne Dyer. Article recommendations and graphics by Lauren Gargani. Special thanks to Emily Baer. Music by Chad Crouch.